Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. So great to see each and every one of you here joining us for our outdoor tent services this morning. And welcome to all of you joining us online for our live stream as well. I'm glad you tuned in today to hear this message. We are continuing in our series this morning called The Gift of Light, where we're really preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're doing it by taking a look at the gifts that the wise men, the Magi, brought to Jesus when he was born. And I think as we visualize this, as we try to picture this scene, most of us think about that all too familiar, commercialized picture, eskic manger scene, the nativity scene that we see come out every year at Christmas, right? If you go to your parents' house, your grandparents' house, you probably see a scene made of either wood or porcelain sitting there, and it's got a couple key figures inside of it. You probably see some wise men with flowing robes of the porcelain or wood. You probably see some farm animals like cows or sheep. Maybe you see some shepherds standing off to one side. If the stable has a pitched roof, there's probably an angel somewhere on the top with wings and a halo. And somewhere in the middle of all of it is a little baby Jesus in a manger. Or like some families, maybe baby Jesus doesn't arrive until Christmas morning as well. But you see, there's a problem with this scene. We become so accustomed to this commercialized scene that we miss out on a couple important things. The first one is this, that there probably were more than just three wise men present during this time. Not only that, but by the time the wise men got to Mary and Joseph, they most likely wouldn't have been in the stable anymore. They would have been moved into a house. And not only that, but Jesus himself wouldn't have even really been an infant. He would have been a toddler. Most scholars believe Jesus was probably about 18 months old by the time the wise men arrived. And I don't know about you, but that really changes how I picture the wise men bowing down to a toddler. Because let's be honest, how many of you have a toddler, have ever had a toddler, or know of a toddler? Raise your hand. The laughing tells me you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I, if I'm being full disclosure, full, full transparency, I used to get so annoyed at the parents of toddlers. When Tiffany and I were dating, we would go out to these restaurants and try to have a nice meal at Taco Bell. And as we would be sitting there, uh, we would see these parents come in with these toddlers and they put the toddlers in the high chair and they just start screaming and crying and throwing food everywhere. And deep down inside, I was like, man, why don't they just muzzle that child? Like something is just wrong. Like that child just needs to be taken care of. And I would look at the parents and like give them that side eye glance, glare like, what do you think you're doing? And there was a look on their face that was just like they didn't care. But then I had a toddler of my own. And I understood it's not a face of I don't care, it's a face of I'm done <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and what I have learned over the last 13 months with my son Oliver is it's sometimes it's okay to negotiate with terrorists. Um, okay, take my iPad, take my iPhone, watch Baby Shark for the 90 millionth time, whatever it's going to take to get you to stop crying and to drink your bottle. I'll buy you that toy, I'll give you that candy, just please, for all that's holy, go to sleep, right? There's just something inside of you that just builds you up. But this experience that I have really changes how I see the wise men coming to bow before this toddler. So what we're going to do this morning is really put some context to this to help us understand what's really happening and then to take a look at the gifts that these wise men actually brought. So if we take a look in Matthew chapter 2, it says this. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
very unusual gifts in our day and age, but very practical and useful gifts in their day and age. And each one of those gifts had a real deep significance and symbolic meaning to who Jesus would actually grow up to become. The gift of gold, which we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve, represents Jesus as the king, a powerful, wonderful resource for us. Two weeks ago, Pastor Carlos opened our series by talking about the gift of frankincense. And by the way, this is what frankincense looks like. You probably can't see it from way back there, but this is actually frankincense from the Holy Land. It's pretty cool. But there was this gift of frankincense that was brought that represents Jesus as the high priest, someone who would go on our behalf. And today we're going to talk about that third gift, which is the gift of myrrh. But if we're being honest, most of us probably don't even really know what myrrh is. We wouldn't even know how to spell it if it wasn't up there on scripture on the screens right now. And that when we hear myrrh, the only thing that we can think of is that thin balding guy from Impractical Jokers. You guys know the TV show. That's what we think of when we think about myrrh. But nevertheless, myrrh is this gum-like substance that's used 17 different times in scripture. And it's used in one of two ways. First, as an antiseptic. We see that when Jesus is being hung on the cross, he's offered a glass of wine that's mixed with myrrh to help dull the pain that he's feeling. But he rejects it to bear the full weight of the cross. The other way it's used is as an ingredient in the embalming process. So when Jesus would have died, it would have been used to prepare his body for burial. So when we think about myrrh, what we need to think about is it represents Jesus as the suffering servant someone who would go on our behalf and die for us, who would suffer extreme amount of grief and pain so we could live. And so what we're going to do this morning is I really just want to tell you a story of how Jesus is our suffering servant. And we're going to do that by looking at a prophet from the Old Testament by the name of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 53. If you're online, open up a new tab, go to Bible Gateway or your favorite Bible app. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 in just a minute. But before I get there, I want us to really understand the importance of this because Isaiah lived long before Jesus did, but yet he gives us some of the most insightful writing about what would happen to Jesus well before he was born. How can that be? So to help us understand that analogy, I, I want to get your help real quick. How many of you in here are football fans? Okay, I see some. And I also heard some little grunts like, woo, amen, right? Isn't that weird? Whenever we call for football fans, there's like a, yeah, that comes out after that. It's so weird. But if you're a football fan, what would you say if I could predict what two teams will be in the Super Bowl next year? Would that be pretty cool? Some of you are like, yeah, but you probably can make an educated guess. If you watch the games and you know the teams, you can probably figure it out. What if I took it a step further and said, not only will I tell you what teams will be in the Super Bowl, but what the final score of the game will be next year? So you're like, okay, that's a little bit more impressive. But if you watch statistics, if you know the players, you know the teams, you watch all of the games, once again, you can probably make a very educated guess. I'm going to take it a step further. What if I were to tell you, not only am I going to tell you what teams will be in the Super Bowl, what the final score will be, but which player on which team will score the final touchdown at what time in the game? Some of you are like, hey, buddy, let's go to Vegas. Woo, right? You're my new best friend. Let me take it one more step further. What if 700 years from now, football is still a staple in our culture? And I could tell you what teams will be in the Super Bowl, what the final score will be, what players will be on the field, and at what time the last touchdown will be. Some of you are like, that's improbable. That would never happen. This is exactly what Isaiah did. Not about football, but about Jesus. Seven hundred years before Jesus is born, 
he writes about his suffering. It's so impactful to see this and be firsthand witnesses of what Isaiah is writing about how Jesus would become the suffering servant. So we're going to unpack that in Isaiah 53 this morning. But first, we need to start by understanding we have a problem. We have a really, really big problem. And once we understand that problem, we can see why Jesus had to be the suffering servant to help us get through that problem. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 53, starting off with verse number six. It says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. God had this original plan for all of our lives. Something beautiful, something majestic he wanted for you and for me, but somewhere along the way, we strayed. We went our own way, and like sheep, we have gone astray. Now, to be called sheep, that's not a compliment. If you were to say, hey, you're like a lion, or you're like a tiger, we'd be like, yeah, that feels powerful. But to be called a sheep, that's like him saying, you're not the brightest crayon in the box. In fact, you're not even the sharpest crayon in the box. Because being called a sheep, it's not a compliment when we really look at it. Because you can train all kinds of animals, right? You can train a dog, you can train a bird, you can train a hamster, you can train an elephant, you can train a pig, you can even train cats. It's hard, but you can do it. But you can't train sheep. You never go to the circus to watch the sheep show, right? You just don't hear about it. You don't have friends who are like, hey, I just got a pet sheep. Why don't you come over and watch my sheep set? I realized that was a very dangerous phrase to say out loud really quickly. Sheep set. That could have been really bad. Um, I'm sorry. I'm a dad. I had to do it. It's, it's there. That's for you, Oliver. But that could have been really bad, right? To be called a sheep, it's not a compliment at all. Because sheep are three things. They're weak, they're witless, and they're wayward. Let me describe that. They're weak, they're witless, and they're wayward. Sheep are weak, meaning they have no defense. If some kind of predator or something were to come and attack them, they have no way to defend themselves. They don't have fangs to scare off an intruder. They don't have quills that they can shoot. They can't run fast. They can't fly away. They can't blend in with their surroundings. They don't have a poisonous tongue. If a predator comes their way, they have no way to defend themselves. They're weak. Not only that, but they're witless, which means they don't really think for themselves. They don't say, hey, there's a lion or a coyote coming this way. You run this way. I'm going to run this way. And then maybe if we start talking to other people, other sheep, maybe some of us will escape. No, they all just kind of huddle together and say, buffet's open. <laughs> they're witless, but they're also wayward, which means sheep have a follow the leader mentality. If one sheep does ridiculous sheep stuff, odds are the other sheep are also going to do ridiculous sheep stuff. I can't make this up. There's an article from a newspaper in Turkey back in 2005 that said that 1,500 sheep followed each other off of a cliff. 1,500 sheep followed each other off of a cliff. You think after the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh one would have been like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> Something is going on here. Like, we probably shouldn't keep going that way. But no, 1,500 of them went off the cliff. But the silver lining to this story is only 400 of them died because by the time the 401st one fell, there was such a fluffy pillow at the bottom of the cliff. I'm not making this up, that they just bounced and rolled off. So 1,100 sheep of the 1,500 survived, but the first 400 died. Sheep are weak, they're witless, and they're wayward. And this is what Isaiah is calling us. He's saying, you are like sheep. You've gone astray. And I can't help but put that into our present day context and really see how true this is. We are weak. If we look at this global pandemic that's affecting us all, we're tired. 
We're worn down. We're weak. We're weary. We feel like we have no defense. We have no way to get past it. It just goes on and on, and we feel drained like we can't fight against it. There's nothing we can do. We are weak. We're witless. As hard as that is to think about, we're witless, meaning we don't think for ourselves. We become influenced by social media and what we see on the TV, what we read in the papers, what we hear our people talking about. We get influenced by that, and we make our decisions based off of that. We're wayward, which means we have a follow-the-leader mentality. I don't want to be excluded. What if people really know who I voted for, how I feel about vaccines, how I feel about wearing masks? What would people do to me? I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to follow the ebb and flow of our culture. We are like sheep, and we've gone astray. We're weak, we're witless, and we're wayward. And that's exactly what Isaiah is calling. That's why he goes on to write in the rest of this verse, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Keep in mind, this is 700 years before Jesus was born. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Have you ever been hurt, mistreated, overlooked, rejected, unjustly criticized, misunderstood? Because if you have, Jesus understands. He's been there. He's been through every single part of it. It was prophesied that he would be despised and rejected that he would become a man of sorrows, the suffering servant, so we could live. He would become acquainted with the deepest level of grief known to mankind, so we could be forgiven. Yet we turned our backs on him. We walked the other way. We didn't care that he'd be rejected. We didn't care that he would be despised. We didn't care about any of that. We just kept pushing through and going on as hard as it is, but yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sins that weighed him down. A lot of people think it's something that he did, some sins, some actions, some phrase that he said to God the Father to allow him to get punished, but no. He became the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who would go to be slaughtered for us. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed by our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. That's what he would do for us. That's what he did for us. But I think when we look at this nativity scene at the Christmas time, we don't see that in this little baby Jesus. Yeah, we know that he's going to grow up and he's going to die on the cross and rise again in three days. But in our own consumeristic mentality, we start asking, what does that do for me? How do I benefit from that because it is all about me. And if Jesus is really supposed to be the suffering servant who took away all of our suffering, why am I still suffering today? What makes Christianity different than any other religion because it feels empty? Well, I think once you really understand the depth that Jesus went through for you, the amount of grief and suffering and pain that he endured on behalf, you won't just say casually, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church when I can, maybe pray over a meal. No. When you understand the depths of his love, you have no other way but to say, I am all in. I'm wholly committed. I want to live my life for you because this is the way. This is the way. But it only comes once we understand what 
he did for us. So that's what I want to do with our remaining time this morning, is simply to try to paint the picture of how Jesus suffered for us. And there aren't enough words to express adequately what he went through on our behalf, but I'm going to try to paint a picture for you. And it's not going to be a fun, happy ending message. It's going to be a dark message. But it's important that we understand what Jesus went through, because it all started at the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, it would be a place where Jesus would not only wrestle with God, but he would also get a glimpse of the suffering that was to come. He just finished up eating a meal with his disciples, and he took a few of them into the garden with him, as he says, to watch and to pray, because he knows what's about to happen. He knows the events that are about to unfold, and so he wants to prepare their hearts and really be in this intimate fellowship with the people in the garden with him. But when he gets there, what he finds out, they can't do it, and they fall asleep. So feeling probably emotionally abandoned by his close friends, feeling a little rejected maybe, Jesus goes a little bit deeper into the garden, and he begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God, and he begs of him, and he says, my God, would you take this cup of suffering from me? See, he got a glimpse of what was about to happen. And he says, this is more than I can bear. Father, if there's any way possible, would you please remove this cup of suffering from me? And then he falls to his knees and blood begins to drip from his brow. That sounds weird. That sounds unreal, but it's actually a medical condition called hemocytorosis. And it's when a person is undergoing an extreme amount of trauma and stress that the capillaries in your forehead burst and your blood becomes mingled with sweat. And so he's on the ground, he's on his knees, he's crying out, and he says, God, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's what he's experiencing. He saw the grief. He saw what was about to happen. He says, I am so overwhelmed with my soul. I feel like death. But yet he faithfully says, God, not my will, but yours be done. I know it has to happen, and I'm going to be faithful to do it. So he gets up, and he walks back out towards his disciples, and he's greeted by another friend with a kiss that's meant to be holy, but turns out to be a kiss of betrayal. Jesus is arrested, falsely accused, unfairly tried, and condemned to crucifixion, one of the most horrific, heinous forms of death during that time. He'd be taken away, he'd be stripped, publicly exposed, ashamed and embarrassed. Then they'd take and they'd weave together a crown of thorns made of an inch and a half to two inch thorns and place it on his head, mocking him as a king. And then the beating would start. Again, and again, and again, they'd whip him across the back with a whip with bone shards in it, ripping apart his flesh, exposing his organs to the environment. Then they'd take signet rings, put it on their fingers, and beat him across the face. They'd take clubs, and beat down on the crown of thorns on his head, driving it deeper and deeper and deeper into his brow. And Isaiah goes on to write and allude to the fact that they would take and they would grab his beard and pull chunks of his hair out, and he would become so disfigured, people wouldn't even recognize him as a human being. 
He was just a mangled mess. And if that wasn't bad enough, hurt, vulnerable, exposed, weak, they'd then give him his cross to bear. They'd place a hundred pound or so wooden cross, rough, rugged wood with splinters on his back with the splinters in the wood driving deep into the open wounds that had been exposed from the whipping. And they'd force him to carry it 650 yards on a way, on a path called the way of suffering to a place called Golgotha where he would be crucified and hung on the cross. Once he got there, they laid the cross down and lay him on top of it and they would drive six, seven inch or so nails through his wrists, through his feet, piercing him to the cross. And then they'd take and lean it up and it'd drop into the earth with a thud. And there he would hang. And the only way that Jesus could breathe would be to pull himself up on the nails in his wrists and to push himself up on the nail in his feet. But soon it would get too much. His shoulders would become dislocated and he'd drop down. His knees would start to shake from trying to support the weight of his body before his legs would get out and slowly... Slowly, he'd, learn the, or he'd lose the ability to breathe. And he'd be gasping for air. And there he would hang under the hot of the day, being mocked by all of creation. The son of the creator would be mocked by the creation. But then the real suffering began. That wasn't bad enough. This is where Jesus really starts to suffer. Jesus at that point, someone who was innocent, Blameless, never sinned, never did anything wrong, would take on the sins of mankind. Everything evil, disgusting, vile, filthy, dirty, he took it all. And in that moment, God the Father, who is righteous, who can't be around evil or wickedness, had to leave from his side. And that intimate fellowship, that personal connection Jesus had with the Father, was gone. And it was at that moment, Jesus cries out, With a loud voice, he says, my God, my God, why have you left? God, why have you forsaken me? And he was in such emotional turmoil and anguish and grief that the people saw this and they said, hey, here, drink this. It's some wine mixed with myrrh. It's going to help dull the pain to make this more bearable for you. But Jesus says, no. I've got to finish what I've started. This is what my father has called me to do. And it's what he did. Shortly thereafter, Jesus gave up his spirit. He looks up at the heaven and says, Father, it's finished. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he dies. And what's so impressive to me is that Isaiah is writing about this 700 years before Jesus would even be born. 700 years. Look what he goes on to say in verses 8 through 9. It says, By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. Yet who for his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Continues on, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was tried. He had done nothing wrong. He had deceived no one. He had hurt no one. Yet he was tried as a criminal and buried in a rich man's grave. He had never sinned, but yet he took on our rebellion, our sins, 
our mistakes, our failures, our filth. He took it all so we wouldn't have to bear it. And he was put to death for it. Isaiah continues to say this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's what he did for us. That's what he would do for us. I mean, just think about that for a moment. What makes Christianity different than every other religion that exists out there? This. That an innocent man who had never sinned, born of a virgin, who was pure and blameless, would go and die and suffer so we could live. That way we could be set free and forgiven. That his blood would wash over us and cover us so we could live And this is actually something that is foreshadowing an event that goes all the way back to the Old Testament times called the Passover. If you're unfamiliar with the Passover, it's where once a year, God in his righteous judgment would enact his vengeance upon the people of the land for their sins. And there was only one way to escape this judgment. It was as a family to come together and to slaughter a lamb, to sacrifice a lamb, to eat of its meat, and then to spread its blood over your door and along the sides of the doorframe. And as the angel of the Lord who would enact his vengeance would go through, it would see the blood and say, this house has been atoned for. There's been a sacrifice, blood that has been shed to cover the sins of the people in this house, and it would pass by. What a beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. He would be the blood that would cover over us, set us free. He would suffer so we could be forgiven. We could be made whole. We could be healed. And I think that when we really visualize this scene with the wise men coming to bring this gift of myrrh, it's a great foreshadowing of what is about to come. It's God saying, this child that you see in this manger has been born to die, has been born to suffer, to be sacrificed so you may live. You may live. And Jesus knew this. If you look at Luke chapter 9, it says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whomever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Let me tell you what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, pray this one-time prayer and you're going to be prosperous and experience blessings for all of your life. No, he didn't say that. He said, do you really want to be my disciple? You've got to die to yourself because it's not about you. It's not about what you're going through, what you're experiencing. You have to die to yourself. And once you do that, and only once you do that, you can then take up your cross and follow after me. See, folks, this isn't just some hobby This is not some add-on. It's not something that just makes you feel good when you go to grandma's house or go visit Santa for Christmas. No, this is a child being born of a virgin, sinless, blameless, who would go and suffer in our place, who would die on our behalf so we could live. But we forget that as we enter into this season. 
As we enter into this Christmas week, yeah, maybe we read the story about the wise men and say, hey, there's the gift of gold, and God's a king. There's the gift of frankincense. He's the high priest who's going to offer himself for us, and the gift of myrrh that he's going to suffer on our behalf, but we don't do anything about it. We don't really take that to stock and realize what he has done for us. He's saying, you don't have to suffer anymore. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be afraid You don't have to be worn down in this life. There's a better way. And it's what I've already done for you. It's the blood that I've already shed for you. I'm going to call the worship team to join me back up here on stage as we close out our service today. And I really feel that God is leading us into a time of prayer. Because maybe, just maybe, we are entering into this Christmas week like we always do, thinking about gifts and gatherings and Maybe it looks a little bit different because of COVID, but somewhere deep down we think, you know what? Jesus doesn't really understand what I'm going through. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to live in 2020. Let me tell you something. There's a guy named Flavius Josephus who wrote a book called The Antiquity of the Jews who writes about what was happening in the land when Jesus was born. I pulled some key words out of it. Listen to this. When Jesus was born, it was one of the most dreadful times in history. It was a troubled and turbulent land. Herod was at the end of a long career that was bloody and paranoid. There was mass terror, widespread surveillance, domestic conflict, open revolution, government overreach, mobs against government authority, the threat of war, and religious unrest. That sounded all like something maybe we're experiencing today. And yet we say Jesus doesn't understand what we're going through. In the midst of all of that, Jesus still said, I'm going to go and die so you can live that you don't have to experience this. You don't have to be held captive to sin, to doubt, to fear, to worry, whatever it is. You have been liberated. You have been set free because I've already suffered for you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? So we're going to enter into a time of prayer just to prepare our hearts to really receive Jesus and what he's done for us. I'm going to open us up in some prayer, and then I just encourage you to sit in your seats and reflect upon what God has done. Or if you're online as well, just to sit in silence and think about it. And if maybe you feel moved, maybe you're ready to be set free by the suffering of Jesus Christ, there's going to be some pastors who are on the sides who are ready to pray with you. And if you're online, we haven't forgot you as well. Pastor Alex is going to be our online host right now, and he's going to be interacting with all of you that if you want prayer, he's going to be there to pray alongside of you. But don't leave this place today without recognizing the full extent that Jesus went so you and I could live. He would become our suffering servant. Let that change how you go into this week. Father, God, we are overwhelmed by all that you do for us. Father, all that you have done for us. God, and it's so easy for us to forget the extent that you went so we could be here today. We could be alive, that we could be breathing, that we could be living, Father. God, I don't know what's going on in the hearts of the people here or the people online today. God, I know this is a tough season of life for all of us. Father, we're all struggling with different things. We all feel the weight of the world. And maybe we feel alone. Father, I pray that you just fill our hearts with your presence. 
let us know that you're there. That we don't have to live in worry. We don't have to live in fear or doubt. We don't have to suffer, Father, because you've already paved the way. You've already sacrificed so much so we could live, and it's time that we really start living, living for you. So, Father, I pray that as we just enter into this time of silence, that you would speak your truth to us. Father, let us hear your words, Father, what you want to say to us this season. Father, speak to us.